Kent Garrett. Welcome to another episode of the Last Negroes at Harvard podcast. Our guest is our classmate, David Lelleveld. He will talk about caste and race in India and the U.S. He is a retired professor of history at William Patterson University. He is the author of Allegarth's First Generation, Muslim Solidarity in British India, which was reprinted in 2003. And he is co-editor of A Wilderness of Possibilities, Urdu Studies in Transnational Perspective. David received his PhD from the University of Chicago and has held faculty and administrative positions at the University of Minnesota, Columbia, and Cornell. I am joined by 20 of my classmates. So let's start with uh, Doug. I'm Doug Shapiro. Uh, I'm a retired physician and behavioral ecologist. Um, although I've lived at various times in seven different countries, somehow I've never man- managed even to visit India. So I'm particularly interested in uh, today's discussion. Hi, I'm Spencer Jordan. I'm uh, 61. I am uh, living in sunny Florida, where it's just a beautiful, going to be 85 degrees and sunny. Uh, and my uh, special interest is uh, sustainable development and the future of the planet. Okay. You know, stuff like that. <laughs> right, little stuff. Cindy. Hi. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm living in uh, Chianti, Radin Chianti in uh, Tuscany in Italy. And uh, yeah, things are okay. I lost my husband three weeks ago. So oh. it's going to take a while to get over that. But, uh, you know, we're going ahead. Yeah. Good. Thank you so much for joining us, too. Thank you. Yeah. Alden Briscoe, also in the class with the rest, most of the rest of these people. I grew up in Connecticut, now live just south of San Francisco. Um, and although I've never been to India, we're currently, we consult with nonprofits, and we're currently consulting with an organization called University of Silicon Andhra, which is for trying to create a university here in Silicon Valley. Hi, I'm Jeff Fox, uh, now living in Spain, um, and where um, mostly I'm writing fiction. Uh, I used to teach sociology. I have an anecdote that may amuse David and others about caste in India. Uh, it's an old one it, when I, from 1978 from Bangalore in Karnataka. But um, I'll spin it to you. Also, I have, a, I have an article which I'm sure David would find very naive because I'm not really an India specialist. I did make an attempt to understand caste and race uh, and uh, spent some time with a group that called themselves the Lit Panthers. They were untouchables who were imitating the Black Panthers. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow, wow, okay. Uh, Hamp. Yeah, I'm, I'm in Nashville. I grew up in New York and Brooklyn. <laughs> I am a non-retired psychologist. <laughs> non-retired. <laughs> and and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very, very, very concerned about everything that's going on with Ukraine and I was class of 63 and we were all involved with Vietnam then and now we have Ukraine. Okay. Uh, the US was bombing Vietnam and now Russia's murdering Ukraine. Uh, my name's Peter Grilly. I'm living in a town, little town called Harvard, Massachusetts, which some of you may have heard of. It has nothing directly to do with that little school down, the, down across the state on the Charles River. Um, I 
started in class of 63, as I gather many of you are also 63, um, but ended up graduating in 65 for all kinds of reasons, which we can talk about some other time. I've been in India twice um, and am particularly looking forward to the discussion today. Okay, I forgot there were two Peters, the other Peter, Peter. I, I live up in the White Mountains in New Hampshire and I am uh, also a non-retired uh, editor and, and writer. Mason. Uh, I am uh, calling from Florida, but I'm mostly astonished that David Lillybelt remembered that we met on the streets of Calcutta in 1964. Uh, I've for I had forgotten it entirely. I congratulate him on his uh, incredible memory and uh, someday hope to talk to him one-on-one -on -one about what I was doing and what he was doing. <laughs> okay, great. Lisa. Well, I'm still from the class of 63. I'm still in Ann Arbor and still retired. Okay, John. Still smiling. Yeah, about, about the same. Uh, we Eliza was in India uh, longer than I was, but on a different occasion. And I spent my, most of my time in India in the airport. And I'm from, I'm uh, class of 63. Uh, live in Peterborough, New Hampshire. I'm a retired reference librarian and I've turned into a climate activist. Jerry Secundi, I grew up on the uh, East Coast, but I live in Pasadena, California. I'm an environmental lawyer that mainly works in the water quality and water supply area. Okay, Richard. I'm Richard Rabinowitz. I started out in Brooklyn and I'm back in Brooklyn again. I was a, a youngster in this group. I was a class of 66, a freshman, we were seniors. Um, and I've spent a career uh, creating, mostly creating history museums and exhibits, a lot of them about the history of slavery and African-American history all around the United States. So I'm fascinated by this. This is a very important subject for me. My name is David Othmer. I grew up in South America, but I too was in India in 1964. I was actually working with a Harvard tutor named Steve Margaret, economics tutor on a project in, an, in a remote village. Um, I now live in Philadelphia. George Jones. I'm currently in Atlanta, although I live in Ann Arbor. I spent about several weeks in Gujarat about 30 years ago, and I'm now officially a member of the Octogenarian Denial Society. We <laughs> <laughs> all okay. Well, Mar Marcy. <laughs> um, in in New York City, mostly working from home looking for an archivist to lead a team uh, that gets it and wants to help prevent the rewriting of history, a lot of history that's totally relevant today. I'm Jay Pasikoff. I'm just out of my teaching my class today about the history of the telescope. Here's a spectrum from uh, 1814, the original. Uh, I overlap with uh, David Lelliveld at the Bronx High School of Science. Some, some years ago, uh, and I uh, was yeah. most recently in India for an eclipse of the sun uh, a year and a half ago, Christmas time. Oh, okay. And uh, Ezra, Ezra Griffith is on. Can you hear us, Ezra? Oh, oh, I'm Ezra Griffith. I'm Ezra Griffith, and I spent a lot of time overseas. I'm coming to you from Paris. Great. And now, David, how are you? Welcome. Thank you for joining us. 
I, this all reminds me of sitting around on the table in the in the union, uh, <laughs> or in in my case in Adam's house, um, uh, talking and talk. That was the best part of Harvard was just sitting around talking uh, to to other people and. Uh, um, I, I otherwise was not particularly happy there, but uh, uh, it was a great pleasure and I miss that a lot. So it's uh, great to be here. You know, when I have spent my, my career as a, uh, a historian of India and mostly of Muslims in India and mostly Muslims uh, during the per uh, period of British colonial uh, rule. And uh, very little of that comes out of Harvard, except that in the freshman comp course, uh, gen ed, that we all had to take, um, they happened to have assigned a passage to India. And I wrote a paper about it. Um, but uh, you may recall that when there was very little about India in uh, at Harvard at, at that time. Um, uh, I had met and later came to know very well um, Suzanne Rudolph, uh, who taught the last two weeks. I think John and Liza knew the Rudolphs, uh, although maybe later at Chicago. Uh, when Lloyd Rudolph, her husband, um, was denied tenure, uh, the uh, my recollection is uh, some administrators said, uh, you know, uh, it's a big world and we can't do everything and we just don't have time for India. And uh, somehow I'd gotten interested in India, but uh, there was very little to go on. I, I applied for a fellowship um, uh, to travel the world, maybe the one that Mason was on. Um, and uh, uh, I was told that, uh, oh, it was for the British Commonwealth or something like that, but not India. India was excluded from it because uh, uh, whoever had endowed uh, the the fellowship didn't didn't like India uh, and didn't like Gandhi and Nehru and all, and all of that. Um, <laughs> but um, anyway, I I wound up uh, uh, getting a Fulbright fellowship to teach English uh, at an Indian college in uh, after graduating and. Uh, liked the people, liked the food, liked uh, uh, many things about it and became immersed in it and then went on to uh, do my graduate work at the uh, University of Chicago, working uh, for some reason on Muslims in India and on the Urdu language uh, in, in particular, um, uh, and wound up uh, doing my PhD thesis, and this is a parallel to Kent's work, uh, on the history of a college and the students who went there and what became of them afterwards. Uh, somewhat more academic and uh, arcane than, than, than your book, but uh, uh, on, uh, something of the same, same sort of theme. And uh, uh, I've worked on those sorts of things. And most recently, I became interested in the whole issue of caste uh, and caste as applied to Indian Muslims. Um, and, uh, and I've done a, a little writing uh, about that. And uh, in line with that, I um, uh, read uh, Isabel Wilkerson's book um, because that was a big bestseller sponsored by Oprah and all, all of that and uh, uh, explicitly uh, uh, tells us that uh, uh, 
studying something about India and Indian caste will tell us something about uh, the condition of uh, Black Americans in the United States and the history of uh, slavery and Jim Crow and all, 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 all of that. Um, and uh, uh, like many people who study India, I was not completely uh, uh, taken with what she uh, said. I was, there was, uh, uh, and I'm critical of it. On the other hand, I have to say, going through the story, many, many of those things I certainly have read about before, is still obviously compelling. And it was compelling to a lot, a lot of people. And uh, even though I think she gets a lot of things wrong, uh, uh, the purpose of her book uh, is a longstanding effort to find some sort of solidarity among uh, the oppressed of the world, the damne de la terre. And uh, uh, I, about 40 years ago, I was in New York. In those days, I was teaching at the University of Minnesota, as a matter of fact. Uh, but my wife was teaching here in New York. And so uh, uh, I was commuting back and forth. And it was just before Christmas. And I got a call from a, a place here called the Asia Society. Would I come down and meet some Indian writers? And uh, I went down and the uh, writers were uh, from a group of people known as the Dalit Panthers. Um, the Dalit Panthers, Dalit, uh, I'll, say, I'll explain it, means oppressed. It really means stepped on. Uh, and it was a word that was adopted by people who uh, otherwise had been called untouchables, harijans by Gandhi and other, other such words. Uh, and uh, I'll say a little bit more about that. Anyway, these two people were from, uh, uh, were Marathi writers. Uh, they spoke Hindi, they did not speak English. Um, and uh, they had a Ford Foundation fellowships. And somebody at the Ford Foundation had said, um, come to New York and we will introduce you to publishers and literary agents. And so they went out and bought warm coats in December and came to New York City and uh, somebody took them to a cocktail party, stuck a cocktail in their hand and told them to mix. Um, and they didn't know what to do. So that's why I was sent down to talk with them. And they said to me that they really wanted to meet some African-American writers. Um, and what could I do about it? I think it was December 22nd, December 23rd, and we didn't have Google in those days, and we didn't have, uh, and I was living in Minnesota, but I knew that Toni Morrison worked at Random House, and I knew that Amory Barak was in Newark somewhere, and I tried desperately. I called Random House. Well, Toni Morrison doesn't spend Christmas vacation in, uh, in New York City, and she was back. Uh, wherever she in Ohio or wherever she was. And uh, I couldn't get in touch with either of these, uh, anybody, um, and uh, didn't know how to even begin to uh, do that. So I took these uh, two guys on a tour of Harlem myself. 
And uh, we took the subway up to 125th Street. We walked up to uh, 135th Street in the Schomburg Library, took them into the Schomburg Library, took them around the block to the County Cullen Library, which has murals on the, on the wall. And uh, this was 1982, I think it was, um, height of Reaganomics. Uh, and uh, uh, it was just people standing around with uh, burnt out houses, people standing around and uh, uh, burning garbage to keep warm. Uh, it was a horrible scene. And they were shocked. These were so-called untouchables in India from one of them from Bombay, another from another place. Uh, and I, the one from Bombay uh, who's written a wonderful autobiography that uh, has been translated um, was say, how, how do you permit this to happen? How can this be so terrible? I mean, these, it, it, the kind of social alienation they saw there in Harlem in 1982 uh, was shocking to them. Um, and they both wrote about it, uh, uh, by the way, and uh, about the, this day that we had. And then we went to Columbia University uh, not far away. We're just walking in the, in this cold weather, and uh, um, uh, they. Uh, I took them to the Southern Southern Asian Institute, and the uh, director, uh, professor of history, was there. And he quickly went into the storeroom and took out a big portrait of B. R. Ambedkar, the great leader of the, uh, 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 and and took it out and popped it against the wall, and, uh, and they were very pleased to see, see that there. Much has been made of that uh, uh, si since that time. And my point in telling that story is just, um, they, they were looking for some sort of connection and some sort of solidarity. Um, the, actually, the, the very existence of the Schomburg was uh, a library. Uh, I don't know how many of you have uh, had a chance to uh, visit the Schomburg, but it was something that was very meaningful to them. And uh, I, I can't say that anything like that has uh, developed in, in India. Um, so I guess the question uh, coming back to Wilkerson is uh, what does this kind of comparison tell us that we don't know? And my basic point I guess if I have one, is that um, she gets everything backwards. It isn't that there's caste in the United States, it's that there's racism in India. And uh, uh, that uh, racism has uh, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly overtaken uh, the social system of India, particularly uh, applied to people who are now known as Dalits, but uh, also to uh, to Muslims. Uh, and we're talking now about hundreds of millions of people. There must be 200 million Muslims in India and more than that of uh, Dalits. And uh, perhaps there's some overlap, that's a question, but, uh, with India itself. Uh, now, the word race and cat, those are just words. What are we talking about when, uh, uh, we, uh, when we talk about this? Uh, and uh, the best book I know about this, uh, and maybe uh, an old classic, uh, maybe Jeffrey uh, has thoughts about it, is Oliver Cox, who uh, wrote a book called Caste, Race, and uh, Class. 
or past class and race or something like that, um, which is a 600 page uh, treatise finally published in 1951 by the Monthly Review, which is a Marxist uh, press. And he was a Marxist sociologist with a PhD from the University of Chicago, originally from Trinidad, but came as a, a teenager to, uh, to the United States. He had, being from Trinidad, he had some exposure to the Hindu community and uh, knowledge of it in Trinidad, but he had never been to India. And basically he uh, did his work based on uh, uh, what was available to him uh, in, the, in the 1930s and, and, and 40s. Um, and he was highly critical of other writers including Allison Davis, who was, by the way, a professor at the University of Chicago when I was a graduate student, um, uh, who was much praised in, in Wilkerson's book for explaining uh, uh, the condition of African-Americans uh, in terms of caste. Um, what uh, the idea that uh, uh, Cox had of uh, racism was that it was a, uh, a mechanism that arose with capitalism and was bound up with, uh, with capitalism, uh, that the uh, slave pan uh, plantations in what became the United States uh, were linked up to the world economy, as we all know, and uh, that the way of marking people for exploitation, especially after the creation of the United States, which was supposedly founded on a concept of equality, um, could only be explained by um, defining uh, categories of people as uh, excluded from that equality. Um, and uh, uh, it was not, uh, uh, it was ra racism um, which was bound up with the transformations that the, he he claimed that there had been no concept of racism uh, as a, uh, as as we came to know it uh, before um, the 16th and 17th uh, centuries. In uh, uh, whether that's true or not is uh, is a complicated question. Now, as for caste in India. Uh, Caste is, first of all, it's not an Indian word. It's a Portuguese word, casta. And uh, uh, it doesn't have an easy translation into anything in India. It's used nowadays in, really, in English. The English word caste is used today because it translates a whole range of um, phenomena of social groupings and exclusions and exchanges uh, uh, involving thousands and thousands of uh, groups that are clustering together, falling apart, moving from one area to, to another. Uh, one can explain it in some sense as a group of people in past time, maybe 2,000 years ago, maybe uh, uh, 200 years ago, coming into a new area, developing the area and bringing other groups as subordinate groups to work for them uh, uh, in a, uh, uh, a system of exchanges. And what you exchange is uh, 
food, you exchange rituals, uh, but most of all, it's uh, an elaborate system of kinship, um, uh, of, of extension of, uh, uh, of, of population, who gets to marry who or not, uh, or have children with who. Uh, all of that is uh, arranged in a many, many different ways in different parts of India and has changed over time. So contrary to what Wilkerson and most thing people say, caste has not, is not a rigid, unchanging system, but is constantly uh, forming and uh, falling apart and coming together again. And what had happened in the course of the colonial period in particular is that the British um, were concerned to understand India, and they thought that the two key things that you had to understand about India was caste and religion. And uh, one way they did that was to uh, uh, have elaborate social surveys culminating in the censuses and starting in 1872 every two years, which went around house to house and counted people counted gender, counted uh, uh, age, counted disabilities, blindness, insanity was one of their favorites. Uh, and they uh, counted them according to categories of castes. And they, and they just compiled lists of castes and numbers uh, uh, along with that. And uh, also according to uh, religion. Uh, and all of this was laid out uh, in, uh, uh, during the, the colonial period in, with uh, uh, really very precise numbers that were misleadingly uh, 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 held together, except if you go from uh, one census to the next, the categories keep changing because as people got uh, started to understand what this was all about, one of the things it was about was which groups to recruit for the British army uh, in, in, in India. Um, they began to respond to it. And one thing they responded to, and this also involves other things like uh, the railways and printing you know, and, and all the rest, was to create new consolidations of people so that scattered groups of people came together on a wide regional basis, sometimes a all India basis, and defined themselves. Uh, uh, and they would have annual conferences, they would have publications, they would petition the government, uh, or they would uh, 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 mobilize themselves for acts of uh, resistance. Um, uh, all in terms of some of these so-called caste categories. And one of those uh, that came to be, came to be known actually only in uh, the close of the, uh, of the colonial period was uh, the, the so-called scheduled castes. The sh uh, schedule, that's uh, the British pronunciation of schedule, was a uh, list at the uh, end of the census of 1931 of all the, ca the castes and tribes as defined by the British census. And uh, uh, scattered all over India, speaking many different languages, um, now 
there was an effort to consolidate them into a political movement uh, of which there were a number of leaders, but the most famous and uh, compelling of them all was B.R. Ambedkar, who uh, was from a, a community known as Mahar in Maharashtra, uh, but had been, his father had been in the British army and um, he uh, was taken up by a patron, one of the Maharajas, and given a good education and ultimately did a PhD at Columbia University in sociology. And uh, he also, uh, or was it political science? I guess it was political science. Um, and, uh, and he also did a law degree in London uh, or became a barrister, whatever that is. And uh, uh, he uh, came back to India as a leader of what he hoped to be a large scale movement to, uh, destroy the whole system of caste, which he felt defined as uh, uh, being integral to Hinduism. Now, what counts as Hinduism is an equally complicated question. Uh, for the British and the British law courts, dealing with issues of marriage and inheritance and so on, it was a matter of discovering the Sanskrit texts that had been written by Brahmins in different parts of India at different uh, parts of, uh, at different times. Um, and uh, 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 this is what Ambedkar ultimately decided was so bound up with caste and inequality and the existence of uh, uh, various forms of untouchability, who you could eat with, who you could accept food from, who you could uh, uh, sit next to, and in some cases even see, um, uh, that uh, it was necessary to abolish Hinduism altogether. And he led his followers, of which there are now tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions, uh, away from Hinduism uh, into Buddhism. Defined of, he thought of Christianity, he thought of Islam, but he decided he wanted something truly indigenous to India. And he created a new Buddhist movement, uh, which still exists and, and is important, although did, didn't really reach out to uh, the uh, whole population of what we now call Dalits. And the term Dalit was also, we have evidence of people using that term as early as the 1920s, but really only came into uh, uh, common usage uh, uh, after the 1950s, after independence. Um, there were big questions, and this was a struggle between uh, 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 Ambedkar and Gandhi, about whether um, the Dalits, the scheduled castes as, as they were called at that time, um, should have separate representation in the uh, legislatures that were uh, coming in, into being. And uh, uh, that was something that Ambedkar insisted on and Gandhi went on a famous fast unto death to oppose it because he wanted them to be integrated into the whole uh, Hindu community, take them away, and hin Hindus uh, become less than the overwhelming majority that they claim to be today. The, and the other group involved, which represented in British India a third of the population, were Indian Muslims, of which there were many kinds speaking different languages in different parts of India. 
Um, many of those Muslims the, uh, uh, had come over the centuries uh, as merchants, as uh, conquerors uh, and armies and, and so on. There were Muslim rulers, of course, most famously the Mughal Empire and so on. Uh, uh, but uh, there, there was a great variety of uh, how people became Muslim in India. Most, most people, Indian Muslims, um, have uh, are all or in part uh, uh, indigenous Indian descent, and they're not uh, 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 of foreign origin, but uh, many of them are of, uh, of, of at least partly uh, foreign origin, and many of them claim to be entirely of, far, of Arab or Persian or Turkish or, or something, something of that sort. Um, and the question arose to the British in the 19th century, was this uh, like caste? Certainly there had, you know, Islam in one sense is a, a religion of egalitarianism, but historically, uh, just as in Christianity, um, there, was, there were inequalities uh, 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 that were bound up in, the, in all the Islamic uh, uh, societies. And... Uh, 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 ruling groups, aristocracies, in one way or another, uh, various claims to deference uh, and such. Much of India for hundreds of years was ruled by Muslims. And uh, that did not uh, by any means eliminate the Hindus. In fact, one could almost say that uh, there was a more Hindu autonomy and more power to uh, uh, Brahmanical authority in the absence of political rule. Um, one thing that uh, has characterized caste, if you want to call it that, is that it does not uh, coincide with power necessarily that uh, Brahmins may be the most honored people and, and such, but they are not the wealthiest or the most powerful people in India. And often uh, by virtue of being a Brahmin, you get to be somebody's servant and cook for them because your, your food is purer than uh, other people. But uh, that doesn't, the rulers of India were uh, very rarely Brahmins. Uh, and uh, uh, the wealthy of India, where there are some regions where uh, Brahmins uh, had, had dominance, but most of, most of India, that was not the case. Um, during the British period, the fact that Brahmins had traditions of education made them more likely to have access to and interest in uh, pursuing education uh, in various parts of India. And uh, if anything, they, uh, they became more powerful. Uh, so we're talking about two or three or maybe as many as 5% of the population uh, of, uh, of Brahmins who became bureaucrats in the government or teachers or leaders in, uh, in the uh, uh, political movements during the, during the British period. Um, but they were not necessarily the people with power. Uh, Wilkerson uses the term dominant caste uh, frequently, but the dominant castes are often fairly low caste people, or peasant castes who uh, control lar large territories uh, and are now politically dominant in, uh, uh, in, in, 
in the democratic politics. Uh, uh, all of this plays into the increasing role of uh, um, various forms of identity in gathering people together uh, for political purposes. Um, so uh, that's, uh, that's going on right now. Um, and uh, the, as you know, since 1914, 19th? <laughs> 2014 um, uh, shows which century we're in. Um, uh, uh, India has been ruled at the national level and in many of the larger states by a political party which identifies with uh, uh, the assertion of a monolithic Hindu identity to dominate India and specifically the exclusion of Muslims from the, uh, the Indian na nation. And uh, just three weeks ago, there was a large gathering in which a number of speeches were made in which uh, the speakers said uh, of, the, of the ruling movement, uh, the RSS um, uh, said, go out and kill a Muslim. Uh, you should go kill Muslims. Muslims should be driven out of the country. We're talking about 200 million people. Um, and uh, nobody in the government said a word uh, uh, against that. Modi, Narendra Modi and his uh, uh, immediate uh, people. There had, uh, the whole, there's a big election going on in the largest state of India, Uttar Pradesh right now. And the um, uh, the government has been singularly unsuccessful economically, singularly unsuccessful in response to COVID. The only thing they've got going to them is hatred of Muslims, uh, and they, which they are pushing as hard as they possibly can in this campaign. And we will see uh, in the next uh, couple of weeks uh, uh, how successful that kind of uh, bigotry works uh, in the face of practical uh, uh, circumstances uh, that otherwise people uh, face. Um, so coming back to uh, what that tells us about uh, African-Americans in the United States, I'm not sure that it does. Uh, it's a very different uh, uh, kind of situation. But what we do see is uh, the, uh, the notion that there are categories of people who ought to be excluded. And we know that that was one response to uh, uh, even in the times of slavery um, in the United States, the whole movement of moving uh, black people back to Africa, Lier uh, Liberia, uh, and for the British, uh, Sierra Leone, uh, and, uh, and that whole history. And then people who took that uh, uh, and turned it around and made it a positive thing, like the Garveyites and, and so on. I, I don't know if you remember uh, um, uh, the movement for partition. Uh, there was a, a guy named Robert Brown. Anybody remember Robert Brown who, uh, who called for the, uh, the creation of a, of a uh, territory in the Southeast, uh, which would be where blacks could live as a kind of 
quite explicitly Pakistan. Uh, of, uh, uh, that is, uh, just as one of the failed solutions of uh, the so-called Hindu-Muslim problem was partition. We also had the Republic of New Africa, uh, which was going to carve out... Some New Soviet Africa, right, right. Another right. one. And then, of course, the um, Elijah Muhammad had a demand for they would be given some states. So that's that's going on. But I wanted to ask you, what about the rich families in India, These the ones with all the big monopolies, the Tatas and other, what do they tend to be? Uh, and are they, uh, what caste and what do they, how do they... Well, they're not a... Uh, uh, the Tatas, for example, are not even Hindus. They're Parsis. They're Zoroastrians. The Ambani's, uh, it's a, a family that migrated from Sindh. Uh, 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 so, uh, uh, and they are not of, of a particularly high caste uh, either. And they, Modi, by the way, is a, is a lower, is, is from a lower caste. Um, they, they reject the, the ones who are not, the ones who are not Hindus. Do they criticize or reject the notions of caste there? You know, as a as an ideology, do they take a stance? I, they're they're largely funding Modi. I mean, it's all uh, 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 this is all practical politics for them. You know, I, uh, as far as I I know, I, I I don't hear ideological statements coming out of uh, out of them. Just so long as it. Uh, but but they've been backing them in in many ways. I just wanted to say this whole notion of using defensively or self assertion of of partitions or nationalisms. You can think of Zionism, Pakistan, New Africa, if you if if you want, as uh, uh, as as. Uh, a response and defense, but also self-assertion of, uh, and of course, uh, I was uh, recently rereading Baldwin's uh, essay about the Negritude uh, Conference in Paris in 19, just at the time of the Bandung, and his skepticism about, uh, about, about that. Uh, 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 so it's, how does one deal with it? It's, a, of course, a great question for any uh, for now, right now, for Indian Muslims, uh, you know, uh, uh, how do they how do they respond to the these kinds of attacks? Jerry, um, yeah, David, uh, just a question: If indeed the ruling party in India is going to go on a genocide against the Muslims, what do you think the reaction of Pakistan is going to be? Well, Pakistan is in in a sad and <laughs> terrible state right now. It's uh, uh, they, you know, when when partition uh, took place, uh, uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah uh, announced that uh, uh, there would be kind of a hostage. Uh, there, there would be peace because the Hindus in Pakistan would uh, be hostages uh, and the Muslims in India would be hostages and that would balance it out. Well, for one thing, uh, there, there are not that many Hindus in Pakistan and there were more in, in what became Bangladesh. But... Um, Still, it's a small minority. Um, uh, the uh, the idea that Pakistan would come to the defense of uh, uh, Muslims in uh, uh, it's just not on the table. Nobody's talking about it. 
uh, and even though both countries have uh, nuclear armaments, that uh, that doesn't seem to be something that uh, is is being discussed. Thank God. Well, David, David, how how, how did uh, Wilkinson get it so wrong in your view? You know, I really, for one thing, I don't think that this constant what she puts forward as cast really tells us anything we didn't know and wouldn't work just as well using racism. Um, she, you know, she's a good writer. I wish I could write like that. But uh, she has this, she, she writes with anecdotes and metaphors and figures of speech and cast is just a kind of rhetorical device that she, that she uses. Uh, and that as she tells her stories and the stories are compelling change the word from caste to race uh, and uh, you have the same story. Uh, so I don't really think she uh, she's had any in, uh, uh, theoretical insights. Others have, you know, Gunnar Myrdal and uh, Alison Davis and people like that did serious sociological uh, work and tried to show that um, uh, there were some similarities in one in one way or another. I mean, the, 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 it's not, I can't dismiss that altogether. Uh, uh, the idea of purity and pollution and, and, and all of those things as part of the way Jim Crow worked in the South. Why couldn't people drink from the same water fountains and stuff like that? It sounds a lot like caste, but it fits into a different system. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I, I think she was so driven. I mean, actually, I, I was quite, I was just rereading the uh, chapter where she compares Alison Davis to Oliver Cox, and I was quite shocked at how poorly she treats, first of all, she bases everything she says about Alison Davis on a biography of him rather than his actual work. Uh, but then she just dismisses uh, uh, Oliver Cox as some sort of opportunist uh, uh, in, uh, in not taking the caste uh, uh, argument uh, seriously. Um, uh, and she just keeps using the word without, without having it do any work for us, you know, it seems to me. She also quotes uh, selectively Alison Davis himself. I looked at the uh, source material and right. it, uh, I mean, it's a, I think it's a book crafted to sell copies, basically. <laughs> I guess so, and she did. Uh, I was wondering, maybe, uh, David, you could clarify some, for me something that puzzled me, uh, the relationship with Varna, which I took to uh, understand, I, it was a kind of color coding of people, which is actually uh, a native Indian concept, whereas, of course, caste, as you said, is really a, was a Portuguese term it was used in Port also used in Spanish uh, to distinguish not only classes of people but but animals. Um, and, and but 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 varna was a was an Indian term, and I'm just wondering how does that play into the caste system? Well, that's interesting because uh, in, in the Vedic literature, which goes back to uh, perhaps uh, 1600 uh, BC, um, there, is, there is the mention of the four Varnas and it comes up again and again in, in the Sanskrit literature. There are the Brahmins, 
The Brahmin is the head, the Kshatriya, the warriors, the shoulders, the Shudras, the thighs, and the, uh, 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 no, I got, got it wrong, the Vaisha, the thighs, and the Shudra is the, is, is the legs or something. And it's all part of a single body. And this is an imagination, by the way, it exists in, in the Iranian texts as well, in the Avestas, uh, of, of a four-part, uh, it's kind of a theory of uh, society. The question is, how do, does my family and my group uh, fit into that system? Um, and uh, uh, people became Brahmins. <laughs> People became uh, kshatriyas. Uh, for example, the dominant, uh, this, the most powerful peasant caste in uh, the Bombay region are called Marathas. They uh, had been a uh, peasant caste that didn't go through the whole rituals of twice born in the temples and so on until the 17th and 18th centuries. And suddenly they're wearing sacred threads and going through uh, these rituals and they're popped up to the Kshatriya status, uh, the Patels, you know, as we know, the, they don't just own motels and, and uh, they, 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 again, were a peasant caste uh, now they 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 do things to uh, raise their status uh, up up th that level, and people are always juggling, uh, and a lot of that has to do with ritual, or it has to do with uh, the food you eat. Uh, when you stop eating meat, for that's very good from a Brahmanical po point of view. Um, so uh, and it's good for you, by the way, but uh, it's. Uh, um, uh, uh, so people have, there's been this whole movement in Gujarat of, uh, of the Patels swearing off meat and liquor and, and so on. And, uh, and uh, that makes them more, more respectable in that ideological order uh, of things. And uh, Modi, who is from a so-called low caste uh, 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 group, a very small uh, caste, has done much to portray himself in a kind of Brahmanical uh, mode of uh, going to temples and uh, doing uh, sacred things so that uh, uh, he, he will look good. So uh, people use uh, these symbols of religion to uh, uh, attract people not unknown in other societies. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, David, it's, it's, it's good to see you again. I'm just wondering when you, uh, when you try to look ahead uh, what do you see as, as the relationship between caste and race in uh, India and in the United States? What, uh, what degree of movement do you see as possible and change? So well, it's, you know, question, one question is, can you have pluralism in which people have their cultural traditions and, their, and, and so on without inequality? I think we can. I think we've experienced that in, in our lives and in our social relationships. And, uh, but it's, it's hard. It takes a lot of work. Um, uh, and uh, I, there's much to be said for having some sort of foundation in your own 
language and culture and food you eat and all of that, because then you're open to others and uh, in, in, in a good way. Um, I'm very nervous about um, uh, the condition of Muslims in India right now. Uh, and uh, uh, it's really touch and go. I mean, there, there is a very powerful movement against all of this uh, Modi, Hindutva uh, uh, thing. The peasant movement that arose last, last year was explicitly against all of that and joining people together. Uh, uh, the movement against a citizenship act, which if in, in effect excluded Muslims who come into India from benefits that were given to Hindus. Um, that there was a powerful movement against that, uh, uh, and and it, both of those things uh, have so far succeeded. Um, uh, you know, there is the tradition of Gandhi and Nehru and the left in India, and uh, it's more powerful in some regions than in others, but it's there. And uh, uh, India is still has the mechanisms of democracy. Uh, uh, whether they can maintain themselves or not, I don't, I, I don't know. As for the United States, well, we're also teetering on the brink. And if, uh, uh, you know, the whole Republican Party uh, goes over to Trump, uh, as it has, uh, uh, that's scary. It's certainly scary. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm here in Washington Heights. I'm safe. I can <laughs> that's <laughs> okay. it. Doug. Doug. Yes. I don't know. I would stay out of Texas. <laughs> Doug. Given the what sounds like the enormous complexity of all the different sort of uh, groups and societies, whatever tasks, whatever you want to call them in India, in comparison with the U.S., it almost sounds like the situation here is relatively simple. Hmm. And uh, I, I just wonder whether that might give you some sense of optimism about the, uh, our abilities to improve uh, our society here and make everything kind of happier for everyone. <laughs> well, you know, I would say on the Indian side, the very complexity of India and its regional uh, variation and, and groups and so on, it's almost like the situation in the Federalist paper, there's, it's very hard for a monolithic movement such as exists now to really succeed in India. Uh, India is a big complex country and to try to push everything buddy in, into a, a straitjacket is, uh, is, is really hard to do. It's not that it can't be done, but uh, it, it would take a lot of uh, uh, coercive uh, power and force. On the other hand, in localities, uh, that, that certainly seems to be the case and that, uh, that, that's what's ha happening. As for the United States, uh, we also are uh, a pluralist society, you know, I, uh, more so in some parts than, than others, uh, but um, uh, it is hard to imagine even the United States that a totally monolithic authoritarian system uh, uh, could, could overwhelm us. Mm -hmm. Well done. Our hopes. 
Holden. Yeah, could you talk a little bit more about uh, caste mobility in India? Because one of the things that Wilkerson talks about in caste is that th th there isn't any mobility. That's why you know blacks will never move up, no matter how high they are. They're still low caste. I mean, and, and so is there a difference there? Is, is she wrong? Well, I, she's wrong. I mean, there, there. First of all, groups move up. Uh, and uh, whole groups can can redefine themselves and have successfully through history. I was mentioning the Marathas. Uh, uh, there are groups that were in the 19th century so-called untouchable, uh, which are now uh, you know, rule the state of Tamil Nadu, for example. Um, that uh, uh, so groups can move up, individuals. Uh, uh, from outside that group, uh, it's harder. When you come into a city, you can change your, you can say, I was, I'm, I'm a Brahmin, and who's to know? You know, it, that's one of the things that Wilkerson understands is that it's not marked. Um, you know, we, we color coding in the United States uh, is, 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 doesn't have a counterpart in India. Although sometimes people say so, that you can always tell such and such. It's, a, uh, it's not true. Uh, you can't. Uh, and uh, um, I, 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 also, I also, of course, the mobility exists for uh, in the United States. We are all, I mean, <laughs> we know that. Uh, uh, we did have a president of the United States. Uh, uh, long ago and far away but anyway uh, and uh, um, uh, uh, it is it is certainly uh, possible but it's uh, uh, that's uh, it's hard you know think of the changes that have taken place since uh, uh, our our class at Harvard uh, uh, there there have been immense changes and by the way no mention of gender. Think of all the, of the condition of women. Uh, it, 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 it's there. Things are not perfect, but uh, they're a hell of a lot better than they were. When I remember when we were at Harvard, there was one uh, tenured woman in the faculty of the whole university, and she was an astrophysicist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you remember that? And, uh, uh, and of course, the, uh, there were a lot fewer Radcliffe students than there were Harvard students and all, all of that. Uh, um, that's changed immensely. I think that uh, the two terms, and I, I have to apologize to David, but, but coming from a different discipline, I think we have different intentions and different uses, different objectives. Caste and race are concepts that we find are helpful to convey some principles that, that we want to talk about. I've always thought, from the time I arrived at Harvard, I thought that the black-white distinction and the race distinction simply is not exhaustive enough. You, you, you don't, it doesn't allow you to do lots of things that you want to do. It doesn't allow you either to be aware of the distinctions that we make in, in thinking about people. There is one psychiatric uh, mechanism that 
all of us use, and that is to turn other people into others, what we call othering. Mm -hmm. When you turn people into others, you, you put them in another group, and then you make attributes and you assign those attributes to the people. Race is not the only acts along which we do it. And that's why race is an insufficient categorization for the purposes of understanding how human beings interact with each other. I think she meant to write a book saying, caste might be helpful if you switch to that because caste has a broader number of axes and, and caste allows you to think of the distinctions. Uh, just, just think of a ladder. There are people on the top of the ladder, people in the middle and people on the bottom. But we can use the ladder to distinguish between and among people um, along different axes. So in soccer, we make a distinction between people who are tall, who can be good defenders, and people who are up front and quick. And then you can, uh, then you can, then you can put attributes and you can assign them. And in fact, that's what we do. We say we pay forwards more than we pay defenders. And we apply this to people who are tall, short, people who are fat, poor or thin. And an important concept for us in medicine is of course that people with chronic severe illness get discriminated against terribly. And that's a very, very important point because we are concerned about using health as a distinction to keep people and that's the whole point of othering, to keep people inferior and superior. The second point I'd add, and, um, and, and why I have over the years been very dissatisfied, is that in my travels, there is not much constancy um, uh, related to understanding the concepts of race and, and, uh, and caste when you move around. Uh, France is a uh, France, and particularly Paris, is a classic example. When you talk about race and when you talk about caste, you need caste. Why? Because because the uh, the, 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 the 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 French, for example, historically have uh, been, been racist towards um, the people from the Maghreb area. And so the Algerians and so on in Paris have been discriminated against for hundreds of years. Interestingly enough, while they do have skin colors that vary across the spectrum, um, for, for some time, for example, very interesting thing because some books came out recently, uh, the, the, the US blacks came over around World War II and so on and right after, uh, and they got treated much better than the Algerians did. So the discrimination is fascinating when you look at um, when, when, when you look at the Paris example, because uh, I, I, the, 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 the descriptions that you come up against are very, very interesting because, because um, a lot of people, the, the, the blacks who came over have been accused of sort of giving up and running and being traitors to the struggles in the US um, because they came over and were treated like princes. But at the same time, um, the Algerians and so on, who as a rule had lighter skins, and so on, they, they were being discriminated. And of course there was this big, big event, uh, I've forgotten the year now, uh, but when there was this uprising of the police officers against, against um, Algerians and threw a lot of people into the Seine River and killed them. There are other distinctions. Uh, I, I've been fascinated reading a text by a, a colleague of mine 
uh, in Nigeria, and, and he was describing the uh, all the uprisings, uh, political uprisings in uh, in Nigeria since Nigerian independence. And and there there they have this. It took me a long time to even follow what he was talking about. There they're distinguished on regions. Everybody's black, but man, do they feel fierce about uh, about each other, depending on which region uh, you belong to. Barbados, Bar Bar Barbados is fascinating in in the ways everything is confused. They originally started out distinguishing between the British and the local Bajans, and so the white, uh, the black white thing was a uh, was, was primary. But then, but then there were British rituals that got installed. British rituals where, for example, people would get knighthoods and so on. So, so a class system began to evolve and uh, to evolve uh, in, in a, an educational and, and money area. And the racism doesn't quite work as effectively as thinking in terms of caste. Again, just a simple ladder. That, 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 that in Barbados, somebody can be uh, uh, brilliantly educated, become a neurosurgeon, and then he is in a, a completely different group and uh, joins a group that eats on Saturdays or Sundays together, hangs out in different clubs, and, and so on and so forth. And you can see this distinction, interestingly enough, sometimes it's, it's, uh, sometimes it's money and sometimes it's color and so on. Sometimes they coincide in other words, and sometimes they disaggregate. And it's just not, it's not got uh, purposefully much to do with uh, the issue of skin color. Although often you can still find examples that break the rules where there's concordance between the upper class is not only well-educated, but it's light skin and the lower class and so on is doesn't have any money, but they're also black. So I, I, I would suggest that, um, I would suggest that uh, the, in, in, in writing the, the cast, I have, have taken to using it as an example that has applic ap applicability to help, um, to help us at least in psychiatry and in medicine, understand what can go on and why race Race simply doesn't work in understanding many societies. It just simply doesn't. And, and we need to understand better why we other each other, why, why we use it to make people inferior, and why the people with power and authority use these concepts to protect themselves and safeguard their power. And uh, it, it, so, so sometimes the people on the top are using othering referring to color and those people are inferior and ought to be continually treated badly. But other times they're inferior for, for other reasons. And I hope all of you will think of the one I've just offered you, which the classic one that we use in medicine, people with severe chronic illness, particularly for example, psychiatric illness are inherently on the bottom. And the discrimination against that group is horrible. And there are many rich people with children whom they even abandon the children because even with their money and so on, they don't want the children around them because there's something in the air that, you know, these people with severe illness and, and, and sub psychotic and so on, they're, in, they're inherently inferior. And the only thing that keeps them alive is that we don't want to kill people off in broad daylight. But uh, in fact, using that example, I came across a few years ago, 
visiting a plantation, there was an interior room. There was an interior room inside the plantation house and I couldn't figure out the function. When I asked my guide what this was all about, he, he pointed out to me that in rich plantations in Barbados years ago, the rich people would shut up in that room for many, many years as somebody in the family who had severe disabilities. So, I, so it turns out as an interesting example within Barbados culture, how again this discriminates, this discrimination against the mentally ill was interpreted on a caste system along health, uh, lines of mental health well established in the island. I, I just want to take your point about othering uh, and uh, there are many kinds of othering and the kind of othering that is most frightening is the kind that uh, uh, gets people killed. Um, so uh, Wilkerson, we haven't mentioned, but one of her sections is to claim that the condition of Jews in uh, Germany uh, and in the Nazi reg regime was a, is a caste situation. Uh, and uh, to say that that and, and just as what I was saying, uh, the call for uh, uh, ethnic cleansing of the Muslim population of India uh, is uh, that's a that's a that's the ultimate othering. That's the um, exclusion of uh, of people, not the uh, kind of hierarchical cooperation that uh, that you use in the metaphor of of the ladder or, or the soccer team or, or whatever it is. Uh, uh, and, and those are important distinctions. And I think the, uh, uh, the kind of uh, othering that involves the killing and exclusion or driving away or ethnic cleansing of, uh, of whole populations, in some sense comes out of a basic ideology of those that are left are equal. Those, it, it's, it comes out of a uh, kind of distorted egalitarianism, because if you're going to uh, oppress people, then they really aren't part of the same species. Mm -hmm. Ezra, that, that the concept of othering is fascinating to me. Is there an opposite of that, of ussing or whatever it is? What, what I'm thinking about is that, uh, you know, at, at one point in, in the United States, um, no Irish need apply. We had bars that, and, and now I, I don't think anybody particularly cares that someone's Irish. Uh, and so we're, you know, the Irish are kind of in it with the rest of us. Now, is it possible to do that with other groups? I mean, you name your group, whether it's Muslims or Blacks or Jews or whatever. Well, uh, I, 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 take, I take your point as well as the response from David, part of the problem with these intellectual classifications, and, uh, and frankly, I think this is why many black intellectuals now are deciding to write from a different point of view um, from, from the white intellectuals. Because the issue is othering isn't meant uh, to be defined for the the facile use of the academics. And Lord knows my 45 years as an academic makes me one, but I know better now. The, 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 the issue is that um, when you think about racism and when you think about the othering and so on and so forth, 
when you go around in different cultures and you go around in different regions and areas, even different simple communities, you've got to listen to the people and how much they have suffered and how they think about it. And I've come to that conclusion. The academic definitions and sociological definitions are not the ones that work in this. And why don't they work? They don't work because all of them have remarkable exceptions. And the question then is how suffering is used to oppress me and my neighbors, people I love and so on. So I, I can sit here all day long and talk about the weaknesses in the classifications. And in fact, I have met no terminology, especially the race terminology. It simply doesn't work across geographical territories. But neither does my concept of ladder. Doesn't work in every society, simply doesn't work. But I sure as hell feel it. And I have reduced it and written, for example, about what goes on at a simple place like Yale. I mean, if you're being othered at Yale and you can't get promotion or you look around and there's never ever been a black professor against uh, before you, and then you get there and they seal off the door behind you, I mean, that's othering. And it's extremely painful to live in that context. And that's why it becomes important. And it's not, be it's not because the guy down the hallway, um, the, the historian or the philosopher, I'm gonna take his, uh, his way of thinking about it. I've learned it the hard way. In medicine and the, and the doctors, as everybody knows in the United States, they were a vicious part of the race system. And they never recognized until relatively recently that they were using all these principles against the people they cared for. So they were racist, but, but nobody ever thinks of them as a racist group. And the only way you can attack that is to say, okay, I switched the terms. I switched the terms. Let's just talk about the definition of medical ethics. And so I got you. Uh, and, 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 and that's the point. And hard, nobody, nobody in the U.S. now can, can fight against me in talking about the way we treat patients with chronic severe illness. And that's why I want to talk about it that way. I want to find a concept that encompasses the group that I am particularly interested in and the way in which we can talk about treating each other better. And the othering piece, because I just wrote a piece, I composed a piece to talk about the conversations between the president of this country and and Putin, I mean, there are perfect examples when you listen to them talk of othering each other. And then that's justification from going to war and killing lots of people. So I'm, I'm thinking about it very, very differently from uh, uh, the, the way others would like to classify this thing and work on a differentiation system. I didn't mean to say any more than that. <laughs> well, listen, we've been talking for about an hour and uh, 20 minutes, and uh, time flies. Any more questions? Any more um, thoughts? And if not, we'd like to thank you, David, for coming on. And it was really terrific. Yeah. Yes, thanks very much. Thank you very yeah. much, David. Nice to see you after 55 years or whatever that yes, was. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, well, it's a great pleasure. And uh, I will... Uh, <laughs> join the group to get uh, in the future and okay. also I'll catch up on the on the website and the on some of the things i've missed uh, but it's uh, it's almost as good as sitting around the table at uh, <laughs> in the union right <laughs> 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 <laughs>
That was our Harvard class of 1963 classmate, David Lelavel, talking about race and class in India and in the United States. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcast. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.